0: You know, it never fails. It really never fails. Just last week, I was extolling the intelligence of people of the biblical times, you know, how they gave us philosophy and law, how they weren't just superstitious in their religious beliefs, how instead they thoughtfully... Considered the things of God, they have observed the passing of time and knew that a yearly calendar needed to be adjusted by a quarter of a day per year. They knew all these things. They accurately accurately plotted both solar and lunar eclipses. In most ways, they were the equal or superiors of modern man, and and then we come to today's passage, uh, Acts. Fourteen eight through uh, fifteen is what we're going to cover, and you have to look at it and say, "What's this about calling them Zeus and Hermes and wanting to slaughter a bull in their honor at the city gates?" You know, it just plays back into my uh, against my saying they're not suspe- uh, suspicious. They weren't suspicious. They weren't superstitious in their religious beliefs. Acts fourteen eight through 15 says, In Lystra there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates, because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So much for sophistication and the lack, as I said, of religious superstitions. Now, in my defense, Lystra, where Paul now found himself, Paul and Barnabas, was not Iconium, that leading Roman city uh, adjudicated, one of the major cities of uh, Asia Minor in the Roman uh, world, nor. Iconium was the Greek city, administered by the Greeks, but the uh, city in Antioch was the leading Roman city of Galatia. So, these are the two cities that Paul had just come from. Lystra was not like those two places. Lystra was to the southeast, down away from city in Antioch and Iconium. Lystra, like Derb or Derby, was not a city at all but a small rural town. It was considered a backwater, considered to be an area of uneducated farmers. Lystra became a Roman colony 50 years earlier, and the Roman Empire settled it with retired soldiers, not The aristocracy, it was given to as retirement when a Roman soldier retired after service, he was given land. This was one of the areas where the Romans resettled soldiers. So, not only were they rough and tumble soldiers there, but the people of the area were considered to be robbers. The hillsides were littered, literally, with. where bands of robbers could hide out and be safe from the Romans. It was considered an area that had no regard for Roman law and was a constant source of trouble for the Romans. It is in this rustic, uneducated area that Paul and Barnabas find themselves preaching the gospel and being missionaries to the Gentiles of the area and it was indeed almost exclusively Gentile and we know that because of what happens next Uh, verse 8 said in Lystra there sat a man who was lame he had been that way from birth and had never walked and once again just as back in chapter 3 Luke is making sure that we know that this was not some kind of an accident that uh, this man at the gates was going to recover from, that uh, maybe a broken leg, maybe a sprained ankle. No, that was not the case. Because the people of the time knew that if you had never walked in your life, you were never going to walk. There was no hope for you. There was no cure. Uh, Much like blindness that you have to learn from a young age, walking, if you've watched babies learn to walk, is a really important skill for them to learn. Lauren, in fact, who could not walk for quite a while uh, um, due to some heart surgery she had, it was just not worth the effort, we had to set up teams of people to pattern her arms and legs in mock crawling exercises because otherwise she was never going to learn to walk correctly. If you are lame from birth, you're not going to walk especially back then. Now the beggar in Jerusalem was known by those using the entrance to the temple to be lame. They knew the man, they saw him every day, but not everybody in the large city of Jerusalem knew who this man was. But I guarantee you that everybody in the small town of Lystra had known this man sitting at the gates for his entire life. And they knew who he was. This was not some ruse to make a living off of alms. This was all he was known to be able to do. Verse 9 says, He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Scripture does not say, but by the Greek grammar Luke uses here, Paul had spoken in this spot before. Maybe many times during his stay in Lystra because it really means that the lame man was in the habit of listening to what Paul had to say. Those are the words that were used. Of note here is that this is the first time that Paul and Barnabas had not gone and taught in the local synagogue but instead took the gospel uh, directly to the marketplace. And it is supposed that because this was a town of Roman retired soldiers and bandits, uh, that there was not enough of a Jewish population, if there were any Jews at all, to support a synagogue. So Paul's method of going into the synagogue, preaching to the Jews first, along with the leading Gentile, God-fearing population, did not happen here. We have street preaching right from the get-go. Whatever the case, this marks the first Christian outreach solely to Gentiles. Two Gentiles, four Gentiles without regard. And something else to keep in mind as we listen to it, this means that they really had had no exposure to any Jewish teaching whatsoever. They were unfamiliar with the, old, with the Torah, with the whole Tanakh. They wouldn't have known it at all. Verse 9b reads, Paul looked directly at him, uh, saw that he had faith to be healed. And I'll stop there for just a second. Once again, this Greek language translation problem pops up again. The Greek does not say that the lame man had faith to be healed. Instead, it says he had faith necessary for the purpose of saving. Okay, that's a little bit different than faith to be healed. It might incorporate that, but what actually this language says is that this man had been converted to Christianity by listening to Paul. And as Paul looks at him, he sees that he has saving faith and Paul decides to heal him. Verse 10 says that Paul called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. I want you to notice some things here. Exactly what he says. He rather directly says, Stand up on your feet. That's not the language that's always used in the healings just as with the lame beggar that Peter had healed in Jerusalem God's healing was as it always is instantaneous and complete if God is going to heal you it is going to be instantaneous it will be complete does God always heal Paul would find out throughout his life that no God has his purposes for using healings. He heals some. Paul prayed a number of times that what he called the thorn in his side would be taken away from him and it never was. Remember, of course, also that all of the apostles were martyred along with a number of the 70 who originally followed Jesus. We are not guaranteed an easy life or a life, or health, or wealth. We are not guaranteed these things. God has his purposes for everything he brings into our life, and not everybody is going to be healed like this beggar. His healing was instantaneous and complete. There was no learning to walk. There was no exercise to strengthen limbs. Uh, And think about that. If you've ever known that my mother had a broken hip. Now, mind you, she was 86 or 87 when she had it. She was laid up for a month or two. Walking from then on has been an arduous detail because her limbs lost their strength. Somebody who has never walked has no strength in their limbs. Legs that had never supported weight suddenly functioned perfectly. There was no struggling to stand, no hand up. Paul and Barnabas didn't even say, Give me your hand and let me help you up. They didn't do that much. Paul says, Stand up on your feet. And the man jumped to his feet and began to walk. Verses 11 through 12 say, When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul, they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Now, this is a little fun. Lyconium was a very little spoken dialect of this robber-infested area of Galatia, of Asia minor. Nobody spoke the language, and Paul and Barnabas have no idea what's being said here. So, all of a sudden, I mean, if, if I was in a speaking, uh, an area where I don't speak the language, and I just heal somebody, and ask them to get up and walk, and everybody gets excited, I'm going to assume that they're excited at the miracle performed and want to know more. But no, that's not why they were excited. They were excited because they thought that Apollo's, uh, not Apollo's, Zeus and Hermes had returned. To Lystra and that's important that uh, that Zeus and Hermes has returned to Lystra things quickly spiral out of control but uh, with the unknown language the missionaries do not know to put a stop to the pagan preparations. And it was not as odd as it seems that the citizens of Lystra immediately jumped to the conclusion that Paul and Barnabas were the Roman gods Hermes and Zeus come down for a second visit. The great Roman poet Ovid and Ovid's poetry was used as inspiration down through the Middle Ages for Shakespeare on some of his plays. He Was a great epic poet writer. His greatest work was a 15 volume compilation epic poem of Roman myths, okay, uh, called The uh, Metamorphosis, The Changings. And it was retelling Roman myth. In it, the Roman gods, Zeus and Hermes, visited the hill country of Lystra. This nowhere backwater, most important thing that ever happened to Lystra. Hermes and Zeus have come down, and if you know your Roman mythology, or Greek mythology, because they're all the same people, uh, Zeus is the head god. Hermes was his son. And the chief speaker, okay, the chief speaker for the gods, Anyway, in this myth, the um, gods, Zeus and Hermes, visited Lystra, stopping at 1,000 homes in search of hospitality. They asked to be let in, and no one let them in until a poor elderly couple named Philemon and Bacchus invited them in, and despite their limited resources, threw a banquet in the two strangers' honor, because they did not know who they were. In return, the two gods turned their poor cottage into a marble temple with a golden roof, the temple to Zeus, possibly the one that we have just seen, the uh, priest taking care of outside the city gates. And instead of dying, this elderly couple were turned into an oak tree, and one into a linden tree that graced the property through perpetuity. As for the inhospitable thousand residents, Zeus and Hermes destroyed their houses. Okay, so anyway, at the time Paul and Barnabas arrived in Lystra, uh, the temple to Zeus stood outside the city gates. And inscriptions to Zeus and Hermes could be found on a stone altar as late as 300 AD, uh, when people reported still being there. So, not only is it a myth, but there are, there were inscriptions on a stone altar to both Zeus and Hermes. The populace of Lystra, <clears throat> therefore, were not going to make the same mistake twice. Um, So, Paul and Barnabas show up, strangers in Lystra, not speaking the language, and immediately heal a man they know has been lame since birth, and all of a sudden, they know who's come. And it is Zeus and Hermes. Because who else could they possibly be? Remember, miracles are called miracles for a reason. It's not that they're everyday occurrences. You don't, they don't pop up very often. The Lystrans would not be fooled again. So Barnabas, they called Barnabas Zeus. Okay? Zeus was a mighty figure. Do you remember last week we described at the very end a apocryphal description of Paul as small, Bald, with a prominent nose, and he was bandy-legged. He was not Zeus. But the one thing that Paul had was Paul could talk their ear off. He's already converted. The lame man sitting by the side of the road, Paul has been coming for days, preaching in this area, and they know his facility with words. So, Paul is Hermes, the speaker of the gods and Barnabas is Zeus because of his imposing stature uh, we know that Paul, uh, that Barnabas uh, had an extremely good voice that he was just a specimen of a man and so they are convinced that those are who these people were if the sandals fit the Lystrons figured Barnes and Paul were going to wear them. And so that's who they determined they were. Verse 13 says, The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. So things are really beginning to spiral out of control. And this has been going on for a little bit of time because the priest had time to round up a couple of bulls for the sacrifice. And the wreaths, I don't know if they were the laurels that you put on heroes in Greek mythology. Somewhere I read that they were a woolen wreath that you would put over the bulls to be sacrificed as a um, royal type of garment before the sacrifice. I couldn't find anything further than that. But they came with bulls and wreaths, the pandemonium caused by Paul's healing of the lame man had by now gone on, like I say, long enough for word to have traveled outside the city gates to the outlying areas and to the temple of Zeus. And reaching fever pitch, the priest of Zeus gets into the act, bringing the wreaths, bringing the bulls to the newly returned gods. It is about this time that Paul and Barnabas presumably now at the city gates because we don't know if they were in the market or at the gates before doing their preaching it really doesn't say we're doing a little of, but we do know that the, the uh, sacrifice would take place outside the city gates so we're assuming that by now they have arrived at the city gates. They see the preparations for the sacrifices of bulls to them, figure out just exactly what is taking place despite the language problems. They can hardly believe their eyes. Paul immediately moves to put a stop to it. Verse 14, he says, But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, and they think that, I've told you before that. Uh, when they showed up on the missionary it had always been Barnabas and Paul in that order and then Paul had taken the lead in the missionary journeys and it was Paul and Barnabas from then on but now Luke does us a little favor with the language because because Zeus is the chief god and Hermes his son he puts Barnabas's name here first again and Paul's second but when the apostles Barnabas And Paul heard of this. They tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting... So we'll do part of uh, verse uh, 14a here first. The tearing of one's clothes, and we saw it at Jesus' trial, uh, when the chief priest asked Jesus if he was the Son of God, God, and he says, I am, tore his clothes... The tearing of one's clothes was the Jewish response to hearing blasphemy against God. When you heard blasphemy against God, this is what you did. So Paul, on hearing blasphemy against God at them being called gods, tears his clothes. Here also it says, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul, well, we know that Paul would later be an apostle of Jesus. But here, if you see it, you'll note that the A in apostles is a small a. Apostles generally just means we have a messengers meeting in SCAR. Messengers means angels. It also means apostles. It is a catch-all word for people involved in the ministry of the church in an official capacity. And so they are called here small a apostles. We now see Paul and Barnabas rushing into the crowd to put a stop to all this foolishness. And not just foolishness, but blasphemy. So they're they're doing what they can. They shout in verse 15, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea, and everything in them. Now, a true Christian, like Paul and Barnabas, never wants the glory due only to God. We saw back with Peter in Caesarea, and our friend uh, Herod Agrippa, who was offered worship as the great God, and accepted it, and was eaten by worms, my favorite, my favorite part. Anyway, we saw that happen. And there is absolutely no way Paul and Barnabas were going to fall into that trap. Paul and Barnabas wade into the growing crowd at the city gate that was gathering there to celebrate the sacrifice of the bulls upon the long-awaited return of their Roman gods Zeus and Hermes to this small dusty town. Because this time, this time, the townspeople will not turn away Zeus and Hermes in humiliating fashion, but they will be feted with sacrifices and all the honor that is due them. Paul calls out, friends, why are you doing this? And one commentator said, this phrasing is not a question. Uh, it is a command to Stop. Um, friends, why are you doing this? He commands them to stop. He then points out that he and Barnabas were not to be as a subject of sacrifices, as they were mere mortal men, like the townsfolks themselves. And that their purpose in Lystra was to bring them, as it says, good news. He says, why are you doing this? We are bringing you good news, which is in Greek is, of course, gospel. They're here to bring them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And with the giving of the gospel, he in- urges them to turn away from useless things. Useless things are used of the Jews to talk about pagan idols. And this is very much what Paul and uh, Barnabas are addressing here. He urges them to turn away from useless things, worthless things in other translations, vain things, things that are not worth anything. Worshipping anything other than the one true God is worthless. There is no point, as there is nothing to be gained in worshipping a God that is not there. And that's what Paul is pointing out. Paul says that they must turn from dead idols to the living God. And in doing so, in this outreach as he's doing, he varies the preaching that he normally has done. There is not the word Jesus in what he is going to preach that I will cover this week or next week. He doesn't mention Jesus at all which is his outreach normally when there are Jews in the, there. He will also not argue philosophically like he later will do in Athens with the straight Greek pagans of that city. Instead, with a crowd devoid of Jews and a crowd devoid of, devoid of pagan philosophers, because these are uneducated people, They're rural farmers, they're robbers, they're retired soldiers. Paul instead argues from natural law, from what the people could ascertain from viewing the natural world around them. He says, turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Though the people had no knowledge of the Jewish scriptures, this, however, was classical Jewish natural theology. You know, when I was an early Christian, one of my questions was how can we hold people responsible around the world who have never heard, read the Bible, who have never heard of Jesus? How can they be held responsible? And the pastor that I became a Christian under said, "Well, God holds them responsible for the light given to them. All people are given light, and Paul is here at, uh, arguing from the standpoint that they can see, they can see the heavens and the ways the stars work because they had they, they like I said." They knew where the stars were going. They knew the eclipses. And they knew the earth. They had caves all around them. They saw the handiwork of God. And the seas. Somebody made the seas. Who made the seas? And then everything in them, which is all the animals, all the birds, all the fish, they could see the handiwork of God around them. And this is what Paul preaches. To make them aware of their need for God. What is man's duty to God in the light of God's creation? Man is responsible to see that God is acknowledged through that very creation of His alone. Isaiah 41 through 8 presents God's creation as revealing both his glory and his purposes through natural law this way. Isaiah 40 says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord make straight in the desert a highway for God every valley shall be lifted up so we've had we've had a wilderness we've had a desert we have a highway every valley shall be lifted up every mountain and hill be made low the uneven ground that you walk on shall become level and the rough places A plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God, our God, will stand forever. Then in Acts 17, as he's going into the Areopagus Areopagus, to um, talk to the Greek philosophers and the people gathered there, Acts 17 says this, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. By looking at the world, that they might feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. God has given the light for the knowledge of him to every person in the world. Now, everyone has enough light to find him. There is no excuse. Now, to some, to some, Adam, he walked personally with him in a garden. To some, he spoke face to face, as to Moses. To some, he gave the law and the prophets. The priests in the temple had those. To some, he gave Jesus Christ, his son. Some of them had Jesus. To some, he gave the New Testament. To some, he gave the apostles. To some, he gave missionaries. To some, he gave pastors and teachers. And to some, he gave simply the knowledge of creation and the physical world, the land, the sky, the mountains, the seas, and everything that lives in them. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. He is not far away from each one of us. God has given enough light that all those in darkness wherever they are across the world can find him, scripture says and call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. The light is there. They just need to see. Let's close in prayer. Lord, you have given any number of things that we may see and call upon you, that we may have faith, that we may repent to turn from our evil ways and lean on your righteousness. Lord, as we contemplate these things, We need to realize that mankind is without excuse. That you have for ages reached out in various ways at various times to call us to you. I thank you for that. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.